Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, November the 22nd, and we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles as we start a new book. I was looking through some of the past history here at KFUO, and the last time we did this study was in 2014. At the same time, I don't even remember a friend of mine or anybody saying, yeah, we're studying Song of Songs in Paris. But one of the joys I had is we've studied Leviticus, we studied other parts of Scripture, and here we go, digging into to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit shows us Christ, and we are able to understand how it all fits together, that Jesus loves his church, and that love means for you on the cross as we hear that today. So I'm excited to begin this, for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's word this morning, we have the joy and honor of welcoming Dr. Christopher, Christopher Mitchell, Concordia Commentary Editor at Concordia Publishing House in St. Louis, Missouri. And for our purposes today, the joy and honor really is that he is the author of the Concordia Commentary on the Song of Songs. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Mitchell, this is our well, our first time together. Um, can you spend a few minutes introducing yourself, your family, and your work as an editor at Concordia Publishing House? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, starting with my work, I have served at Concordia Publishing House for the last 32 years. It's been a tremendous joy. I spend most of my time editing Bible commentaries written by our best Lutheran Bible scholars, both in our synod and also around the world. I spend about six months reading and editing each book, and I learn so much. I, I wish I could remember everything that I learned. We have 41 books in print, and we still have about 34 more to go, so we're not done by a long shot, but it's it's been a tremendous joy. Um, working backward from that, I previously was a parish pastor in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Uh, before that, I was a seminary student and a graduate student for a long time. I did things in the reverse of the normal order. I attended the University of Wisconsin, got my bachelor's in physics, then did the master's and PhD program in Hebrew Old Testament with a minor in Greek. Then after that, I attended the seminary. So God just worked everything out for uh, the stages of my life to happen in that order. And I have to mention my wife, Carol, we married when we were 19, and she has supported me all these years. She worked and put me through school, paid the tuition bills, and marrying her at that young age gave me a fascination for the Song of Songs. 
I also took a class on the Hebrew text at the University of Wisconsin early on. So those two things, being married to her and uh, having a love for the Hebrew scriptures, were what got me started in this direction. Uh, so I, at that time, formed the desire someday to work, uh, someday to write a commentary on the Song of Songs. So basically, I worked on it for about 25 years until the book was published, and that was about 20 years ago. And this is the thank you for that uh, uh, well the introduction. And as we look at this, first of all, we give thanks for the the ways God has blessed you and and brought you to faith. I know we had a conversation, and we have a conversation, but just other interviews that you've done that you didn't grow up in the Christian faith at all. Can you share just a few thoughts about that before we begin? Sure. Um, yes, I was raised in an unbelieving family. I would say it was an intellectual, humanistic family, smart people, university people, but no faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a disdain toward Christians, as if Christians must be weaker, weaker-minded, that they would need Jesus Christ as a crutch to try to get through life, and the thought was that if you can be above believers, if you can be independent and not actually believe anything yourself, that makes you superior. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very much a humanistic framework in that people are the ones who can decide truth or, or settle on what is true, and people don't need God, there was no hope of an afterlife, so whenever a death occurred in the extended family, it was the worst sort of tragedy. Um, So again, I was raised part of the time in a Unitarian society, which is not a church, it didn't call itself a church but it's an anti-Trinitarian organization. So Unitarian means they deny the Trinity. And again, it was an intellectual environment with a lot of university people. So in some ways it was stimulating as far as, you know, making, making the most use of your brain, but it, it, it was all... Uh, anti-Christian. So I actually had an unhappy childhood and kind of a miserable teenage stage. Uh, when I was in college, I started reading the Bible for the first time. I met some Missouri Synod Lutherans in my science classes. They invited me to the campus church. I went to adult confirmation And I had a great pastor who spent lots of time with me individually. Uh, He he certainly went above and beyond the call of duty, and he used Luther's small catechism. I got quite a thorough instruction. He was the one who suggested that I give up science and study Hebrew and Greek and go into the ministry. Mm. 
I was about 18 at the time, a sophomore in college. So that's eventually what I did, and God used him to redirect my vocation. And I met Carol shortly after that. And she's been a, a huge influence. Um, we have had a marriage that I would say is in many ways like the, the depiction of marriage in the Song of Songs. So some heaven on earth. Thank you for sharing that, Pastor. And once again, thanks be to God, as you said, for his work in our lives. And um, when anybody's able to say Jesus is Lord, thanks be to God by the power of his Holy Spirit. So, Pastor, as we know that the Holy Spirit's with us when we are in the Word of God, can you begin our time asking the Lord's blessing um, in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Lord God, we pray that as we study your word, you would fill us with wisdom and discernment. Give us an increase of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, an understanding of his suffering, death, and resurrection for our salvation, and an increase of love for those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners, as we begin this new book, if you have any questions concerning the Song of Songs, drop us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. And this goes through the whole time that we're in Song of Songs. Send an email. I know that Dr. Mitchell is kind of, he's ready to go if I have questions as we go through this. And and, and also our guests, which obviously will do the study and, and know the Word of God as well. But send us an email with any questions that you may have. And so, Dr. Mitchell, as we look at Song of Songs, as I mentioned before, it's a book that we often do not study. You might read through it if you have like a two-year plan of the Bible, um, but it's not something that you typically put out a big sign in front of church and say, we are studying Song of Songs this weekend, and, and people are knocking down the door to read it. So the question I have is kind of getting the basics. Who, what, where, when of this um, important part of Holy Scripture? What, what do you, how do you want us to begin? Well, to begin with the historical setting, uh, the song claims to be written by Solomon, the first verse, the Song of Songs, which is by Solomon, and I take that seriously. It's the Word of God. So Solomon was the second king of Israel, second faithful king. Um, Saul actually was the first, David the second, um, but uh, anyway, won't get into the history of Saul, but yeah, so um, Solomon was the uh, king from about 960 to 920 BC. His reign was 40 years long, so that is the general date for his reign, 960 to 920 BC. During his reign, the Temple was built. Israel became the largest it ever was in terms of geography. The nation finally reached the borders of the promised land, as God had promised long ago to Abraham. And the nation was at the height of its wealth and power. A lot of the imagery in the Song of Songs reflects that. You have references to 
gold and silver and lavish settings. So that all fits with Solomon. There are other things that tie into Solomon. He is um, said to have authored many Proverbs, some in the book of Proverbs. Most of the Proverbs are ascribed to Solomon. Um, also, he wrote other songs, and he was fascinated with flora and fauna. You see those sorts of images reflected in the Song of Songs, plant images, animal images. So that all fits. Another fascinating part of that question, the who, what, when, and where, um, is the identity of the lady in the song. So Solomon is named, and he's, he's the king. The lady is only called the Shulamite, the Shulamite in Hebrew. That seems to be a town name. That is, it's a feminine form derived from the, the name of the town, Shulam. So that's, that's an intriguing question. Who is she? There is some ancient evidence that Shulam was an alternate name for the town Shunem. So uh, uh, just a replacement of the L with an N. I have a theory that is my own pet theory. I don't claim that it is necessarily required by the biblical evidence. And there, there are very competent Lutheran scholars who disagree with me. But my theory, my proposal, is that the Shulamite may be Abishag the Shunamite. She is mentioned in First Kings chapter 1 and 2. She was a young lady who attended to David late in his reign when he was getting old. And David himself had no relations with Abishag. So it fits in my opinion that she could have become a wife of David's son, Solomon, and that would also be good for practical reasons for Solomon to solidify his claim on the kingship. Hmm. And it also fits with the description of her in First Kings as being very beautiful. In the Song of Songs, Solomon certainly uh, describes her as exceptionally beautiful. And I think there's some other intriguing things about that term for her, the Shulamite. The name Shulamite is related to the Hebrew noun Shalom, for peace. And in the final chapter of the song, chapter 8, verse 10, she says that by virtue of her faith, her faithfulness, she was, in his eyes, one who found peace. So she plays on that noun, shalom. Shalom is also the root of the name Solomon. So there could be a kind of pun there. 
that in finding peace, she also found Solomon. That is, uh, she had peace with God through her faith, and then God in his grace also gave her the peace of being married to this fabulously successful king. And then there may be a third aspect to the meaning in that the where of where the book takes place is Jerusalem and its environs. So Yerushalayim, uh, the root Shalim, is also in the name of the city. So the implication would be that not only is she privileged to receive peace with God and to marry Solomon, she also gets to live in the royal palace in Jerusalem. Well, thank you, Dr. Mitchell. As you've spoken about that, that really brought up a lot of different thoughts because we went through First and Second Kings here on Thy Strong mm-hmm. Word um, prior to this, actually a while ago, and it just brings back all these memories of you know, Abishag and, yeah, that, that whole dynamic right at the beginning of that relationship. And, of course, like you said, this is not thus says the Lord, but according to how we have Scripture interprets Scripture. It's it's about as good of a guess as we can get, and that's a fascinating. Now I have to go back and put my first King's lenses on a little bit and uh, think through that. But yeah, so as thank you for that that rundown. We just went through Ecclesiastes as well on this program, mm-hmm. and so it really brings to light the wisdom that the Lord gave to him. And we remember First Second mm-hmm. Kings. And then we also look at this as he uplifts marriage. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. As you said, this relates to your own marriage. For us as husbands, mm-hmm. it's good for us to think about that. Also, the, the beauties of our brides and, and the way that the Lord has brought them to us. And he almost gives us words on how to uplift our wives as well. So um, mm-hmm. other themes or thoughts or where do you want to take us from the who, what, where wins? What's the next step? Well, I could add that Jewish tradition is that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs relatively early when he was in the prime of his vigor, and that is consistent with the content of the book, and that he wrote the Proverbs more uh, in his middle age when he had his most mature wisdom and had had a lot of experiences with the way life goes in the world, and that he wrote Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life when he was disillusioned by his successes. We know from First Kings 11 that he was excessive in his marriages. He ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Some of those foreign wives led him into idolatry. So that would fit with the picture in Ecclesiastes of a jaded older man, you know, thinking about death. He does confess faith at the end of Ecclesiastes and exhorts the fear of God. There's no evidence in First Kings that he repented after his idolatry, but there is some evidence in Chronicles and the commentary that we've published on First Kings 1 to 11 goes 
attuned to that. And I like that's Dr. Walter Meyer. He takes the view that Solomon did repent of his idolatry late in life and that he was saved by grace through faith. And so we can expect to see him in heaven. Well, that would also fit with Jesus' references to Solomon in the Gospels, where he, he refers to Solomon favorably, but then says even the lilies of the field are clothed more gloriously than Solomon was. Gotcha. Oh, that is wonderful. And and as we look at this, there is going to be that question while we study this, and anybody who's ever read Song of Solomon, why is this in the canon, we call it, all 66 books? Why why would this be included? Any, any of your thoughts and maybe themes that go with that? Yes, that's a key question. And there are a couple of aspects to the initial answer I would give. Uh, first of all, as Lutherans, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We let the context guide us in our interpretation of specific passages of God's Word, and this includes the whole context of the entirety of Scripture. We let clearer passages guide our study of more difficult and obscure passages, and we know that the Scriptures are a unity, uh, they're consistent, they're clear, there are no contradictions between different passages. So another hermeneutic we use as Lutherans is the analogy of faith. That is, we interpret each portion of Scripture in light of the doctrine of the whole of the Scriptures, which centers on justification by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So all of this will be directly relevant for the Song of Songs. And let me start with a, a smaller context in the Old Testament itself. In the Hebrew canon, there are five short biblical books that are grouped together in the writings and also called the Wisdom Literature. So the Song of Songs is near, or sometimes next to, depending on the manuscript, uh, the books of Ruth and Esther. In each of those three biblical books, a woman is prominent. Uh, Esther and Ruth are named after the main women in them. And in each of those three books, there is a marriage that is key to the salvation history of God's Old Testament people. Ruth is straightforward history in that uh, she and Boaz uh, gave birth to the line that eventuated in King David. So there's a very clear connection to King David, and of course the promises of the Messiah from the line of David, and Jesus is called the Son of David in the New Testament. Esther uh, leveraged her marriage to the Persian king to help save the 
Judean people when they were threatened. Uh, so that is how her marriage was key in that historical narrative. In the Song of Songs, then my view is that this is another biblical book in which marriage is a key vehicle through which God carries out his plan of salvation. Now, it is, Song of Songs is different from those other two books in that it's not a straight historical narrative. It's poetry, and instead of just recording history, it's imagery, it's artistic. There are metaphors, there are uh, all kinds of poetic devices. So it, it needs to be interpreted a little differently. But uh, to get to the most important point, I would say that in this biblical book, what's going on is that the marriage between these two actual people, so Solomon was a real historical man and the Shulamite was a real historical woman, they had uh, a regular human marriage, but in with and under that marriage is the great mystery of Christ and the church. So we see in the dynamics of their marriage a paradigm or a type or a kind of prophecy of the union between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So the New Testament develops that in more detail, and especially Ephesians 5 is very helpful for our understanding. Uh, already in the Old Testament, you do have a marriage theme. It was a little different in that the Old Testament pictures the Lord, or Yahweh in Hebrew, as marrying Israel as his wife at the Exodus, through the Exodus redemption. So that is a little different in that the marriage already took place in salvation history. In the New Testament picture, Jesus Christ is not called the husband, but the bridegroom, and the church is not called the wife, until Revelation 21, instead, she's called the bride. Mm. So this introduces what I would call an eschatological tension. So we are already betrothed to Christ. He has claimed us as his own in baptism, in the promises in his word. And as we receive the Lord's Supper, which is a foretaste of the feast to come. The feast to come is the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. So that is the ultimate feast at, to which we have been invited in Christ and where we will enjoy the banquet in full. But the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that. We receive Christ's true body given for 
in our faith so that we can remain faithful. And through remaining in faith, we will be received to the final banquet. But this, um, this betrothal also includes an element of danger in that the wedding has not yet taken place, so there's the danger that we could be seduced away from Christ. And this is part of the New Testament imagery, for example, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says to the church, I betrothed you to one bridegroom, to Christ, but I am afraid that you may be seduced away from Christ, just as the serpent, Satan, seduced Eve into sin. So we can't just live it up and take it easy and think, okay, I'm already part of the bride of Christ, so I don't need to be vigilant. It's okay if I indulge in sin. You know, I'm I'm immune to the, the danger of falling away from the faith. Actually, the danger is quite real, so we need to be on guard and vigilant. The church is called the Bride of Christ, the Virgin Bride of Christ. So this doesn't mean that the, the members of the church have never sinned. Rather, in Ephesians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Christ has cleansed his bride with the washing of water with the word. So a sacramental baptismal washing. And, and it's through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we are rendered pure in like the sense of like a, a virgin, someone who's never committed any sexual sin. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us. But there remains the danger that if we fall from faith, we would lose that righteousness. Uh, throughout the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, there is an, an, an autonomous or opposite theme of adultery and idolatry. So the prophets often condemn Israel for, it was variously translated, uh, for prostituting themselves, for going whoring, for whoring with false gods. And yeah, the prophets, particularly I'm thinking of um, Ezekiel here and other prophets too, use that imagery. So that is what we need to guard against. Um, the bridegroom is jealous. You know, God is a jealous God, and we are not to have any other gods. He won't share us with other people. Just like in a marriage, you are called to be faithful to your spouse. There's uh, no provision that allows you to be unfaithful. That could jeopardize or destroy the marriage. So that's part of this theme also. Now, Dr. Mitchell, uh, it's time for us to take our break. I want you to continue oh, okay. because you're really bringing it together. And I heard it said, and I want to reaffirm this after our break, 
is what we see is a glimpse of the Lord's love for his church in Christ. And so let's talk about that further on the other side of our break. Uh, We are studying Song of Songs with Dr. Christopher Mitchell, and we will be right back. KFUO is a listener-supported radio ministry that needs your support to continue. When you partner with KFUO, you are proclaiming Christ worldwide. November 30th is Giving Tuesday, a day that encourages you to give back in whatever ways you can. Giving Tuesday presents a perfect time each year for you to support your favorite nonprofit organizations, including KFUO Radio. To give to KFUO, call 314-996-1518 or text KFUO to the number 41444 or give online at kfuo.org. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Song of Songs with Dr. Christopher Mitchell, Concordia Commentary Editor for Concordia Publishing House in St. Louis, Missouri. And Dr. Mitchell, you, boy, you brought us from beginning to end, back into the middle, and back again to every point that we can look at with this book. And, and I don't want to make this way too simple, but it, it, it points us to the depth of God's love for us, the, the, his bride, the church, through Christ. And, and would that be a good starting point and that really brings us back to all the wonderful gems that you gave to us? Or is that way too simplistic? Uh, simple is good, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's much better to start with a simple, accurate understanding than develop that. So, yeah, it's, starting with the basics is, is definitely the right thing to do. And that's where you, you brought us back, Dr. Mitchell. I just, want to, I just want to make one more highlight because to break it down a little bit is, is to you can't read Song of Solomon alone. <laughs> like you don't right. say, oh, I, like if you would have been in college at UW-Madison and someone said, hey, what book should I read? And they say, oh, first one, Song of Solomon. Not a good one to start with. But here, when we put it in context of the resurrection, we put it in context of Adam and Eve, put in context of Ephesians 5, we put in context of just salvation narrative of Jesus itself, boy, it opens up in beautiful ways. So I, I just wanted to highlight those few things that you said because that's how my simple mind thinks, and you have brought oh, it together yeah. so beautifully for us to understand how it all comes together. Now, I interrupted you before our break, so what direction did you want to take us or what other points did you have to say? If I could just briefly return to that topic of the place of the song in the whole canon, um, I think there's some other aspects that are very important. So as you mentioned Genesis, uh, the scriptures begin with a marriage. In Genesis 2, you have... Again, one real historical man, Adam, and one real historical woman, Eve. 
and God unites them in marriage, you have that uh, statement, so a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then at the end of Scripture, you have the marriage theme too, uh, especially Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, Revelation 21 is the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride coming down from heaven. Uh, she's the bride of Jesus Christ, who's called the Lamb. And then in chapter 21, I believe it's verse 9, finally, at long last, the church is not only called the bride, but also the wife of the Lamb. So that's when the marriage actually takes place. At the return of Christ, you have the wedding feast, you have the marriage, and then in um, Re Revelation 22, that imagery continues. You have the Spirit and the Bride saying, "Come, Lord Jesus." Again, that now that's you know moving back to our current time frame. In view of the second coming of Christ, we pray. Maranatha, Lord, come. That's what we yearn for. So scripture begins and it ends with this marriage theme, and that is uh, the, the bigger framework within which we must interpret the Song of Songs. The, the, book, the books in the middle of the Bible need to be interpreted in light not only of the books right next to them, as in the case of Ruth and Esther, but also the whole scope of Scripture from beginning to end. And this also is important for the hermeneutic we use for the Song of Songs. Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, were two actual historical people, as were Solomon and the Shulamite. So throughout the history of interpretation of the song, there has been a great debate. Um, early church interpreters, such as Origen, said that the book is simply an allegory. That is, it's, it's purely metaphorical. There wasn't actually a man and woman involved. It's only about... Christ and the Church. And on the other end of the spectrum today, there are a lot of humanistic interpreters who say, no, it's not about Christ and the Church at all. It's just a love poem. It's erotic literature. Uh, leave God out of it. So both of those are extremes that we should avoid. And I take the start of scripture with a real marriage to be significant for interpreting the song, and then also books like Ephesians chapter 5, also 1 Corinthians 7. The New Testament is talking about actual Christian husbands and wives. It's not a metaphor, it's not just a symbol, but these are actual marriages, and then Paul in Ephesians 5 says uh, uh, the, the 
way the Greek reads literally is, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. And right before that, Paul quotes from Genesis, same words that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's a deliberate allusion uh, or reference, I should say, to the original marriage in the Garden of Eden. Our Ephesians commentary author, Dr. Tom Winger, who I, I think extremely highly of, um, takes the view in interpreting Ephesians 5 that from the start, God intended marriage as a, well, now you can debate the exact term you want to use here, a type or a mm -hmm. prefiguration or um, anticipation for the union of Christ and his church. And Dr. Winger uh, derives that and supports that from the exact Greek wording there in Ephesians 5. Um, where Paul quotes Genesis, and then he says, this, myst this mystery is great, and I mean Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. So uh, the one flesh union was, from the very start in Genesis, intended by God to be a working model uh, a picture, and not just abstractly, but actually concretely, of the one flesh union of Christ and his church. So for now, um, as I mentioned, that union is through the Lord's Supper, where we receive the true body and the true blood of Christ. And, and that's, that's what we are privileged to receive now during the current church age. But in the age to come, after Christ returns, then we will enjoy a much more perfect union with Christ after the resurrection when we no longer have our sinful natures. We will be raised in body and we'll live in the presence of Christ in the New Jerusalem, as Revelation portrays. So that's yeah, very important that in terms of the question people ask of the Song of Songs, is it, usually often they'll say, is it either Christ and the Church, or is it a real husband and wife? And Lutherans often, when they're confronted by either-or questions will say, both and. <laughs> it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. And this has to do with our theology that I would call incarnational and sacramental. So I've, I've sometimes interacted with Pastors, Lutheran pastors will say, what do you mean you're calling the Song of Songs incarnational and sacramental? What does that mean? So that just means that 
we interpret it in light of how God has come to us, not just abstractly. God didn't just send us a metaphor or a concept of Christ, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. So we have the physical reality of Christ incarnate and giving his flesh and blood to us in the supper. So our view of the incarnation is related to our view of the sacraments, that in baptism and the Lord's Supper, again, it's not an either-or, it's not either God is doing something or there's a physical element involved. It's a both-and. So God works through his word, united with the physical element, to accomplish the bestowal of Christ's salvation. So in baptism, we really are um, covered with water. Water is actually poured on us, and with that, water is the word, the triune name, and we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. So again, it's a both and, just as in the Lord's Supper, um, the, the body and blood of Christ are actually given to us to eat and drink. It's not just a symbol or a representation. So all of that, in my opinion, is directly relevant for the psalm. Now, Dr. Mitchell, so can, I, talk about, can I ask you a few a few thoughts as you are? Well, you're, sure. on, a, you're on a roll here, that's for sure. And it's, it's oh. wonderful because you're connecting it not only to the incarnation of Jesus, but the sacramental realm of how we live in that loving relationship that our Lord has with us as the loving relationship of a husband and wife. And that's something I really don't, um, I I haven't connected that much with this, well, really at all, and partly because we haven't really looked at this book very much. So I wanted to ask this. Mm -hmm. We have about 10 minutes left in our time. What would you describe as some major themes um, that we should look at while we study each chapter in this book? Yeah, sure. And to pick up on what you said, I think it's unfortunate that the modern church, including our you know, confessional Lutheran circles, generally ignore the Song of Songs. I think what has happened is that we have consciously or unconsciously caved into rationalism and the humanistic view of the song, we've lost a Christological interpretation and so we're like, oh, you know, we'll just, we'll just avoid that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, and what we really should do is reclaim it. It has many practical applications to life today and to current issues. So if we accept this biblical paradigm, the one person of Jesus Christ with the one church, and that's a strong part of the biblical marriage pattern throughout the scriptures, one bridegroom, one bride, this gives us 
an angle with which to respond to all the different redefinitions of marriage that are going on. It not only gives us a way to combat promiscuity by saying, well, that's not what God has called us to. We are betrothed to one Christ. Um, he alone is our Lord. Um, but also these efforts going on today to redefine marriage and polyamory and the, the what I would call the gender benders, where people try to ignore or reverse male and female, and it simply doesn't work. You can't do that. The order of creation itself tells us this is how God has designed us to live. One one man, one husband, one woman, one wife, and that is how children are brought into the world. So, so that's definitely uh, an over overarching theme that is throughout the song. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, um, to to move along then, in terms of your your um, Last question. Yeah, yeah there, there are several themes that I think extend throughout the song and that we can keep in mind to help understand the dynamics. So first of all, there is what I would call an eschatological yearning. That is, um, to get to the structure of the song, it's a cyclical pattern. It's not a straight history starting here and ending there, but you have these four stages in the relationship. You have this, first of all, this longing that the song starts with and ends with, where she is yearning for him to come to her. And this relates to divine monergism in salvation. So throughout the song, the terms for the man and the woman are each gendered, and Hebrew verbs and adjectives and everything are marked for gender. So this is something you don't always see in the translations. But he is called, or she calls him Dodi, my lover. So he is the one who loves her and comes to her. He calls her Rayati, which I like to translate as beloved. So it has a passive idea. She's the recipient of his love. So this relates to Christ as the one who comes to save us, and we are the recipients of his love. We love him in return, but he's the one who initiates everything and uh, is the one who accomplishes our salvation. Just to give a little teaser about hymns that are related to the Song of Songs. Yeah. We have the hymn, Draw Us Unto Thee, or Draw Us to Thee. Mm. So that's based on Song 1-4, where uh, the, the, um, the, it's actually the chorus of the women of Jerusalem who say, Draw us after you so that we may run. So the idea is that 
As Christ says, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. He's the one who initiates and accomplishes our salvation. Um, yeah, so uh, then getting back to the theme, mm-hmm. she longs and yearns for him throughout the song. Um, and that's the first aspect of their relationship. I would say it's like a courtship. It's it's like when you're betrothed, but not yet together. Then the second of the four elements in the structure is the wedding ceremony, the splendor and the beauty of the actual wedding. You, you see that especially in chapter three, where you have this wedding procession, uh, three verses six to 11. Then the third element is the consummation of the marriage. You see that especially in the middle part of the book, uh, four verse 12 to five verse one, where uh, you get a quite a clear description of the consummation of the marriage. And then the fourth aspect is this uh, extended period of love and bliss after the wedding. And that's especially prominent in the second half of the song, chapters 5 to 8. Now, throughout the song, these four aspects of the relationship keep cycling. So you'll have a, a movement through the four to the consummation and then wedded bliss after, and then the whole thing will start over again. You'll get another passage that starts with a yearning. So I think that's uh, very important to remember when interpreting the song. It's cyclical in nature, or it's, it's like a spiral. There is a progression throughout the whole song, um, but it, it's not linear in the sense that we often think of. Dr. Mitchell, if I could, we have about three minutes left, and I wanted okay. to say this. I'm gonna. I want to make sure that I'm. I'm hearing you correctly because because I'm. Well, I'm a simple guy, as as I've already said. Is I'm almost hearing you say that in chapters one through four, it's kind of like this anticipation of the marriage, and then the rest of the book is to see the joy of the marriage, which to me, as I hear this, points me to this, we are anticipating the marriage feast that is so yet to come, and then we will find out more about the joy of the marriage feast when Christ returns. I mean, is, is this, am I right. way off on that? Or is this right? No, that's exactly oh. my opinion, too. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, a, and I can mention that I had fun going through the history of interpretation of classic Lutheran interpreters, and they all take that same view. I can just mention some names, Catreus, Johann Gerhard, Solomon Glossius, who is my favorite. Um, These are from the period of Lutheran orthodoxy. Uh, Dalich of the... Kyle and Dalitz team, and Hengstenberg, too. So those are all very solid Lutheran interpreters who follow this same method of interpretation with a focus on Christ and the Church. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, we have about a minute left, and I want, I want to ask okay. you this final question for you to say, uh, to answer, okay. and that is, 
uh, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to have to take a step back here for a moment because I, I want to make sure I get this correct is why should the average person read the song of Solomon about a minute? Well, it's uh, full of joy. It's a positive book. Um, when we talk about marriage in the church, often we focus on the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and the law is needed. The Song of Songs is what I would call a gospel counterpart to the law. That is, the law tells us don't commit sins. Passages like the song show us the joy and bliss and benefits of living by faith and being faithful to Christ. So we, it's a part of the Church's positive proclamation of what marriage is and uh, the, the larger picture of how that relationship relates to Christ and the future of the Church triumphant. And let me finally mention there are passages that deal with virginity, and that is a holy calling, too, if God calls Christians to remain single throughout this life. And in, in some ways, that's an advantage in terms of only being devoted to Christ, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. So the, the book has many applications to all different kinds of Christians, not just married couples. And uh, there is, at the end, a very strong gospel proclamation. Um, you have in um, chapter 8, verse 9, in metaphorical language, basically, if someone has been promiscuous, there is the covering of uh, silver and cedar, cedar wood being the wood of the temple where sacrificial atonement was made. So the song has also a gospel message for those who have fallen into sin, people who perhaps are divorced or other unfortunate circumstances. There's the gospel message of the forgiveness of sins and the promise of full restoration with, uh, in union with Christ at his second coming. Reverend Dr. Christopher Mitchell, Concordia Commentary Editor at Concordia Publishing House in St. Louis, Missouri, bringing us God's strong word by starting us off on the right foot. I'm so excited to continue this study in Song of Songs. Dr. Mitchell, thank you for being our guest. Well, thank you. It's been my joy. Saints of our Lord, Scripture points us to the anticipation of when Christ returns, because in Christ we know that there is a future hope, and also Song of Solomon points us to the future joy that we will have. We see that a glimpse here in the church, and we'll see it in full glory when Christ returns. What a joy it will be to study this blessed book. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. <music>